0: appearing to the disciples. One of my favorite stories comes at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus eats fish and has breakfasts with his disciples. So you will be enjoying your cinnamon rolls and whatever it is you're brunching on, you will be enjoying that in the age to come. Our future life is most definitely a physical life. What he's saying here is that life as it is now, animated and empowered, governed by what he calls flesh and blood. This order of things cannot inherit the kingdom of God. One commentator, I thought it put it very well when he said, it's like somebody who is, so to speak, made of the wrong stuff. That right now we're made of the wrong stuff. We're made of stuff that is decaying, corruptible material. We need to be transformed into non-corruptible, undecaying material. I don't know how many of you remember, and I know I'm dating myself here, but remember the movie The Right Stuff? came out, I think, in the 80s, chronicling the story of the astronauts who were part of the Mercury space program. Those were the days of Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier, the beginnings of the space program. And the beginnings of the space program were actually quite dangerous. The astronauts took unbelievably enormous risk And so as the description of the movie goes, these men were made of the right stuff. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, why do we need the resurrection? Why must it be bodily? Why is it of a new order of things? Because right now we are made of the wrong stuff. And the wrong stuff's not physical. The wrong stuff is corruptible. The wrong stuff is decaying. The wrong stuff is dying. And so he says, and notice the wording here, he says, verse 53, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Notice the word must. In other words, we have to have almost a new set of clothes made of a new order of things that won't decay, that won't perish. Then Paul addresses a further question. And it may not be a question we uh, think about a whole lot, but he says, what about those who are still alive when Christ returns? Are they just going to be left? Is God going to abandon them? They'll recognize uh, in the days Paul was living in, they were probably thinking that this could happen to them. So he answers this kind of question and issue in verse 51 when he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Notice that word, changed. Notice again the radical transformation along with the continuity. Remember our illustration from last week about the acorn turning into an oak tree? Be honest with me. Come on, folks. Which of us have we looked at an acorn? Okay, tiny little acorn, go, oh, yeah, that's going to be a mighty oak. I I see it now. That acorn, that's going to be the oak trees that I see as I drive through the state of Florida and all of this kind of stuff. Come on now. That's radical transformation, and yet there is organic continuity between the acorn and the oak tree. And this is why, as one commentator put it, we actually need a conversion of our imagination We can't press this too far into precision, Paul. Does say, I tell you a mystery. In other words, he's saying, I want you to think these are categories of thought. But we're not going to know exactly what this looks like. It takes imagination. So that's the first point, why we need the resurrection. Okay, next, what is the result of the resurrection? And this comes in verses 54 through 57. And what is the result of the resurrection? Oh, the defeat of death. (laughs) No small thing. Right? Victory over death. Ultimate triumph. Paul says in verse 54 when the perishable has new clothing, puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass here's the result, here's the consequence, here's the reality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when we finally put on the right stuff, that our order is, it cannot die, it cannot decay, it's imperishable, it cannot fade, look at what happens. It is finally the fulfillment of God's long-promised triumph over the powers of sin and death and the law. Paul is connecting this with the story of Israel by citing from two Old Testament passages, The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verses six through eight. What an amazing passage. Let this grip your imagination. On this mountain, and the mountain of God was always the place where, in a sense, heaven would meet earth and God's presence. Think of things like Mount Sinai. God's presence would be revealed. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine The Apostle John cites this as well in his vision of the ultimate end of the future, the ultimate end of history in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, when he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things, the old order, the corruptible, the dying, the decaying, the imperishable has passed away. Then in verse 55, he cites from Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. And Hosea chapter 13 says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. And Sheol means the place of the dead. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Now, this is interesting because the context of this from Hosea is that of a judgment oracle. God has inspired Hosea to basically summons death death and Sheol to work their punishment on the unfaithfulness of Israel. That's its original context. So that means what Paul is doing here is absolutely fascinating because Paul reworks this and transforms this for his purposes, basically turning these words into a taunt of death personified. Death has now been rendered powerless by Christ's resurrection. And Paul is taunting death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Now, this may seem a little weird to you. I'm going to give a Christmas illustration on Easter. Okay? But it made me think I'm writing this up and I'm looking this and I'm studying this week, and I couldn't help but think about one of Evie's and I's favorite movies that we watch every year at Christmas time, a Christmas story. Okay? Anybody watch a Christmas story with me when it's on that 24 hour loop on TBS each Christmas Eve? Okay, remember remember the scene Ralph and his friends are outside, I think it's recess. It's this frigid, cold, freezing day, and they're all by the flagpole outside. Now you, you even can tell what's coming. One of their friends is there, and, of course, what happens if he licks the flagpole? Of course, it does happen. His tongue gets stuck to the flagpole, right? So what do they do? They taunt him. I dare you. I double-dog dare you. That's what Paul is doing to death here. Paul is calling out, taunting death. I dare you, death. Where's your victory? I double-dog dare you, grave. Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. They have been defeated. They have been rendered powerless by the law. Do you believe this? I mean, isn't it interesting that Paul is always linking up these enemies to us, sin, death, and law? And think about it. The law which is always telling us we're not good enough. We're not self-sufficient. Basically, what by taunting death, death has been rendered powerless. The power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. I think of the words of one of my all-time favorite hymns, Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. What are the results of the resurrection? Enter into the victory. Embrace the fact, yes, we're not good enough. We're not self-sufficient. But Christ is good enough. Christ is sufficient. And if you believe in him, If you confess him as Lord, do you know where you you are and where your life is? It is hidden with Christ in God. And that means his being good enough is credited to you. His being sufficient is credited to you. I dare you, I double-dog dare you, taunt death with Paul. That's the word of God. How does it change us? See, verse 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'll be honest, if I were Paul, aren't you glad I'm not? If I were Paul, I'd be holding the microphone, I would do one of these. Boom, mic drop, I'm out. You know, how do you improve upon thanks be to God who gives us the victory? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But Paul puts in that little word, therefore. That little word, therefore, should give us a clue that he's basically saying, "Um, guys, don't fall asleep on this yet. Time out here. There are some implications to this victory. This needs to change you. So he says, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, knowing that your labor in the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, remember, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. You're still in your sins, no hope. Life truly is pointless. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Your labor is in vain. But Paul here is saying there are some implications. And he says, first of all, there are some implications upon our character. The resurrection impacts our character. Be steadfast, be faithful, be obedient, be loving, be virtuous, be immovable. The resurrection gives you hope. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, having an assurance, knowing something, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me just mention a couple of implications Brief things that of how does the resurrection practically impact and change us? You know, if this, if, as the writer I quoted earlier says, the resurrection is indeed the foundation for a new way, renewed way of life in and for the world. One of the ways, one of the implications of it, as he said, this helps us to hold redemption and creation together. Remember what the Corinthians were actually denying? They didn't deny that there would be a future resurrection. They had trouble with the bodily aspect of the resurrection. And to deny the physicality, the bodily aspect of the resurrection, is to deny the importance of what God created. It denies that our flawed, decaying bodies are loved by God. Now when John 3:16 says for God so loved the world, he's indicating his creation, the creation that is now groaning, waiting for the redemption of the children of God. The physical body matters. And it matters. Another implication is that it gives us a fresh perspective, an honesty, a realistic and yet at the same time hopeful perspective about life and death and the issues. See, this can be both honest and liberating at the same time. It allows us to be realistic and hopeful at the same time. I'll just share with you, I remember when our best friends back in Oklahoma lost their 22-year-old son. And I can't imagine the pain, the visceral, physical emotional pain of such suffering. And everybody wants to be helpful in this time. And that's a a good thing. But sometimes it can lead us, and and I'm guilty, to say things we shouldn't, to not really be helpful. You know, we can say things like, well, God must have just wanted him to be with him or something like that. But how can the resurrection allow us to be realistic and honest on the one hand, without despairing and still being hopeful on the other? Well, first of all, the resurrection gives us a right perspective on the reality of death, that death is an enemy, that death is horrific, that death is to be hated and despised and wept over. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and what did he do? He paused to weep. Isaiah, and then quoted not only by Paul, but by John in Revelation, says he will wipe away their tears from their eyes. But for tears to be wiped away from your eyes, tears must be there. Friends, we can have a reality about grieving and pain, and we can be honest about it. But the resurrection can also and does also give us hope because it means it's bodily. It means we will see and re- remember when Jesus had breakfast with his disciples, not at first, but they did recognize Jesus. We will be recognizable. We will still run and jump I happen to think we'll still play golf. We will eat. We will drink. That's why feasting, that's why Isaiah uses the metaphor of feasting as a signpost pointing to that ultimate hope. Allow your hearts, you know, one of the kind of one of the silver linings of this time where we can't be together? Let your heart ache and long. Can you imagine the parties we're going to have when we can finally be together? When restaurants open up, the opening, reopening parties they're going to have. I haven't talked to the session yet, so I can't promise this, but I think we ought to have a whiz-bang of a party when we reopen things. I think we ought to absolutely celebrate when we do that. But in a sense, we're fasting right now because there's an absence of that. We're not celebrating things like the Lord's Supper. We're fasting of that. One of the things that can do is help us long and anticipate the time when we can feast. It can increase the sense of anticipation and longing for the kingdom of God to come in its completion. And lastly, the resurrection matters for our mission in and for the world. Our mission to make disciples it challenges us to think and maybe rethink what kind of disciples we want to make. See, verse 58 says, no, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, your work matters. God will not throw what we do now on, in the trash heap. It will somehow be woven into the new world. One writer put it this way, he said, Jesus is risen, therefore his followers have a new job to do. And what is that new job? It is to bring the life of heaven to birth in actual physical earthly reality. We pray every week, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now make no mistake, this is not transformationalism or utopianism. The project is not complete until the kingdom of God is complete and consummated. But the resurrection is the foundation for our mission of making disciples who are joining God in his project of renewing all things. That is why we don't build the kingdom, God builds the kingdom. But you know who he uses to build the kingdom? He uses us. So we are building and working for the kingdom. That means we work for truth. We speak and preach and proclaim truth. We work for life. We work for beauty. We work for wholeness. And it matters. We know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you know what kind of freedom and assurance and confidence that can give us? And again, I can't press the precision of this in too many details. All we know is this is the assurance that Paul is given, this is the therefore that he is given. Another writer said, and I'll just close with this, with Easter, God's new creation is launched upon a surprised world pointing ahead to the renewal, the redemption, the rebirth of the entire creation. He writes, hear the message that every act of love, every deed done in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit Every work of true creativity, doing justice, making peace, healing families, pursuing holiness, resisting temptation, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of true freedom is an earthly event in a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation and act as signposts of hope pointing back to the first and looking ahead to the second. Maybe, friends, if we were always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, we can make Jesus, we can demonstrate the, Jesus and make the fact that he is beautiful and believable, In our lives to a dying world. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we remember why we need the resurrection, what are the results of the resurrection, and the significance, how it changes us. And may it change us today. May today be the day of salvation for someone out there. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.